0: Let's turn in our Bibles to 1st Peter chapter 4 this morning. Sunday morning we're studying 1st Peter together and we come to chapter 4. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave at them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, then make that Bible your own as a gift from the church and from the Lord. This morning we're going to look at a single verse In first Peter chapter four, and it is verse seven. The word of the Lord. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Let's pray together. Father, we just acknowledge Before we even turn to your word this morning, we just stand in awe of the fact that this verse is in your book as a revelation of you, as a expression of your heart toward us, knowing that we need to hear this, knowing we need to know this in our life and in our walk with you, being so far from home at the moment In this place called earth on our way to heaven. We pray, Lord, that you would just take this verse and lift it off of the printed page. And not only give it a place of understanding in our minds, but Lord, that you would show us the place of practice that it can have and should have in our individual lives. Thank you for loving us the way that you do. Thank you for caring for us the way that you do caring enough to speak to us. Thank you for this revelation. We pray that you give it life to us now and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. I am a lifelong reader of the comics, whether it's in a magazine or whether it's in the newspaper. Uh, harder for me to get a hold of a hard copy of a newspaper and even a magazine any longer and just how I get a hold of the news. But I love to find a newspaper just discarded somewhere and there the comics are still left in there. And if they left the crossword puzzle, my day has been made. But one of the things about the comics and is fascinating to me, both in my youth and I continue to read them to this day, is not only the humor and humor is an important part of life, but they uh, speaking of of that kind of thing, it, it said that the brevity, that brevity is the soul of wit. And that's the truth. And you think about these men and women that write these uh, comics and how the best of them are able to make a simple observation about life that all of us can relate to and encapsulate it in a powerful way in four little pictures. And then even more than that, how they are sometimes able to take some of the most important truths in life and edit them down to four panels and communicate it in a way that anybody can understand. Now, that's a tremendous thing to do. And if you grew up in kind of the place that I grew up in life, uh, sometimes comics, well, comics in the attempted moral teaching, or teaching about life that would come out of Snoopy and others. That was more instruction than I received from my parents in growing up. So these, were, these are very amazing things. They're not just the funnies. The best of them aren't just funnies. They reach some place in our mind, in our heart, in a kind of a deep place that we can relate to. Well, no one is a lifelong reader of the comics. Uh, Whether in a newspaper or in a magazine Except that we have come across a particular Usually in the form of a single panel comic uh, Over and over again in our childhood and in our adult life And the panel always looks like this The picture always looks like this There's a sandwich board And there is handwritten on the sandwich board The words, the end is near The character that is care H- carrying that and walking with that sandwich board is almost universally the same. Always. He has long hair. He's wearing a robe. He's an odd looking person. And he always if he if he doesn't have a slightly crazed look on his face, he has a slightly crazed look upon in his eyes. And the interesting thing a uh, uh, About it, and the whole idea behind the comic is to communicate the message that even though the world goes through difficult times, anyone who ever believes that the actual end is near is either genuinely crazy or has a gift for overstatement. They're exaggerating the seriousness of the condition of the world. And as soon as they return to sanity, they'll be fine. The fact of the matter is that notwithstanding the making fun of that kind of person and uh, mocking uh, of the world concerning the idea that the world could possibly come to an end, the entire New Testament communicates that not only is the world one day going to come to an end, but that God wants Every single Christian to live influenced by that consciousness every single day of our pilgrimage from this place until we get into heaven itself. That recognition that Jesus Christ could return for us to take us home to heaven at any minute. And in declaring that the end of all things is at hand, Peter is speaking. Of the fact that human history, as we know it, is one day going to come to an end, and it's important to realize that sometimes we intend to think of human history as something that is just this random series of events that just kind of hook one on top of the other. And they just kind of happen. And so that's what history is. It's completely unknown to anyone, us or God himself. It's just kind of happening. We discover it as it does happen. And so there is the uh, sometimes if a person isn't a reader or isn't a student of history, Um, We can conclude that history is kind of like that. It's just this thing that's happening before our eyes that's out of everybody's control because that's what it's looked like in the narrow band of our life uh, span. Or if you read history and maybe can take a broader band of a a century or several centuries and, and to look at. That broader band, and still there can sometimes be the conclusion that this is thing, this thing happens over here, it turns into this, that turns into that, that, this turns into this, and then pretty soon that's all that history is. It's just this random out of control series of events that is just going to go on endlessly till we all kill ourselves or we figure out how to do this thing right on, on planet Earth. But the fact of the matter is, that the Bible teaches that God is in control of everything. And while God gives men freedom of choice and will ultimately hold men responsible for the decisions that they make, that He always overrules and rules all of the events of history to work human history toward His appointed end. The Bible teaches that the Lord will not allow this current uh, worldwide rebellion against him in this world to go on indefinitely, that someday he is going to bring it to an end. And it will be a wonderful conclusion for some, and it will be a horrifying conclusion for others, dependent solely upon what we do with the Savior that he sent into the world, Jesus himself. So that raises the question in our mind, okay, what in the world is the end going to look like? Well, it will begin, the whole series of events that will bring this new thing in begins with the rapture of Christians from the world. And the Apostle Peter, Apostle Paul, let's see, Peter, Paul, Mary, it was Peter, the Apostle Paul, And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 has given us kind of the definitive statement related to the rapture of the church when he said this is what it looks like. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, just waiting, the voice of an archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And all of this is completely consistent with what Jesus spoke to the disciples. John chapter 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, speaking of heaven, are many mansions, abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus currently sits at the right hand of the Father there in heaven. And on the day of this event of the rapture, he will rise up from his throne. He will descend from heaven. And then with a shout, I'm inclined that that shout is going to be something like, Come up here. Because in Revelation chapter four, when the Apostle John gets kind of a foretaste of the rapture and he's brought into the heavenly scene to see what is going on there. That's the words that is called out to him. Come up here. I don't know what language it's going to be in that we're going to hear it. Probably English. <laughs> it's probably what the Lord's going to. It's going to be spoken in English, and then everybody that doesn't know English serves them right. will not it be interesting? It was the sanctified speculation. Oh, it's just, it's not even sanctified speculation. It's just terrible speculation. But he may very well give the shout, and everyone will hear it in the language that they can understand. Or in the instant that we're changed, we will hear it in the language of heaven. You say, what's the language of heaven? (laughs) We automatically think English sometimes. (laughs) But if I was a betting man, and I am not, I'd probably bet Hebrew. But even there, I wouldn't bet on it. But it'll be a language that we'll hear. Come up here and In a split second, in a nanosecond, in just the time that it takes that light to reflect off of my eye, every Christian in the world at that time is going to be caught up or raptured into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's going to happen in an instant, and it will happen with great force and with great power. One minute we're going to go from doing whatever we're doing at that moment in time, and the next moment we're going to be face to face with the Lord, taken into heaven, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And the net result of that particular event of the rapture is that it's going to remove every Christian from the world, except for 144,000 Jews. that will be a witness for the Lord. But it's going to leave behind a world that is completely populated, at least in large part, by those who've rejected God, rejected his truth, rejected his commandments, and most importantly, rejected his son. And the salvation that's found in him alone. Now, God doesn't remove his church from the world to say, listen, you thought an amusement park ride was wild. I can top that. He's not flexing his muscles. He's not showing off or anything like that. The rapture of the church, there's great sober intent behind that particular event. It's done for a reason. And it's done in order to remove his children, Christians from this world, Before he pours out his righteous judgment upon it, upon a world that has rejected his son. Because the Bible teaches that we are not appointed unto wrath. Christ bore our wrath, the wrath that our sin deserves. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, the righteousness of God must be appeased. It must be satisfied. Or he can't be a righteous God. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, acknowledging that He has borne the wrath that our sin deserved, then we are no longer appointed under wrath because that would mean that the penalty was being paid twice for our sin. Jesus has already paid it for us, and we've appropriated it by faith. Peter, Paul, well, listen, here we go again. Paul put it this way in First Thessalonians, again, chapter 5. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we sleep or wake, we should live together with him. And this judgment of God that is coming to this world, and everybody should know about it, again, is going to be a very, very righteous judgment, and the only way to escape it, is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, and as a result of that, then become a follower of him. The fact of the matter is, is that this world deserves judgment for its sin, for its corruption, and that judgment, God says, is coming. The rapture is then going to be followed by a seven-year period known as the Tribulation Period. We talk about the tribulation period. We talk about the great tribulation period. The tribulation period speaks of the seven years. The great tribulation technically speaks of the final three and a half years of the seven years when kind of the greatest of the judgment is poured out on the world. And Jesus declared concerning this uh, period of tribulation in Matthew chapter 24. He said, for there will be great tribulation. Such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. That came out of his mouth. That's his spoken word to the world. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That's Jesus' way of saying, You don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. For that seven year period, at the end of the great tribulation of the tribulation period, Jesus will return at his second coming. He will set down his foot. And it's amazing to think of the Mount of Olives. If you ever get to go over there and visit the Mount of Olives as it stands on the uh, western side or the eastern side of the brook of Kidron there in Jerusalem. And to realize here is this mountain waiting in human history. For the touch of a single foot at the second coming of Jesus. And that his second coming. He will then enter into the city of Jerusalem and he will then rule the world for 1000 years. It's known as the millennial reign of Christ or the thousand year reign of Christ, after which there'll be a white throne judgment. And then following that will be the creation of a new heavens and a new earth. And Peter writes of it in his second epistle, chapter three, and he says, but of the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up and therefore, since all of these things will be dissolved, what manner of person ought you to be? In holy conduct, and godliness. Well, certainly not a materialist. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, one that isn't touched or contaminated by the fallen, by sin. It's so all going to burn up one day and melt with a fervent heat. Some of you, I am no scientist, but some of you may be aware in terms of the atomic structure, the internal structure of the atom, that the way the whole thing is set up with the negatives and the positives and the likes per, uh, repelling one another and the opposites attracting in the whole thing that in that atom you have. The uh, likes, instead of repelling one another, uh, they are held together despite that, that repelling kind of power. It so mystifies the scientists. They have no explanation for it. How come this works within the structure of the atom in a way that it doesn't work everywhere else? And they're so mystified by it and without an explanation that they've come to the conclusion that it's held together by atomic glue. not to be mistaken with meat glue, which is another problem related to our food supply, which I'm not going to get into. But atomic glue, somehow this is just held together by atomic glue. The fact of the matter the Bible teaches is that the Lord holds all of this together. And that one day it won't be some gigantic feet of strength or whatever for him to destroy the current heavens and the earth however far it goes out however many light years all he has to do is simply release his power from holding the whole thing together including the chairs that you sit on the human body anything and the whole heavens and the earth and it will simply become every cell will become its own atom bomb and explode and dissolve in a fervent heat. This fallen world and this universe will be destroyed by God. It will melt with that fervent heat and give way to a new heavens, a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. Again, as I said, unmarred by any sin. And the next step in that prophetic sequence is the rapture of the church. And it's always good for us as Christians to be reminded of the fact that the Lord could come back at any time. And that's how he wants us to live. Is Christians, and it's a privilege to live that way. Always good to be reminded of it. But it is even more important to us when we find ourselves in the condition that the Christians did that Peter was writing to 2000 years ago in the middle of great suffering and great difficulty. And could it be, as Peter is describing here, the situation here? That he has not only in mind who he is writing to 2,000 years ago, and of course it's true, but having in mind that generation that would be close and at the point of Jesus' return for the church. To be reminded that Jesus is going to return for us. Jesus taught that the uh, as we look at the Christians in that time of, of Peter, wrote that all the the difficulty that they were in, the Bible teaches that as the rapture draws near in time, the world is going to be experiencing even greater instability and difficulty for Christians on many levels. And again, we remind ourselves that the Bible wasn't written just to American Christians. In terms of religious freedom, this is the greatest country in the world to live in. For pure religious freedom. We could pinch ourselves that we get to wake up in this land every single day for the freedoms that we have here. Much of the rest of the world, persecution against Christians is so strong. I mean, all over the world. And some nations, because of the changes that have been made in terms of power structure within those changes, many of them Islamic countries, aided and abetted by Western powers, including the United States of America, we have made it very dangerous in the countries that we have tried to help to be a Christian in those countries. And so it's written to Christians in this, con- in this condition all over the world And Jesus taught of that time, the last times, as the Bible calls them, in Matthew chapter 24, to the disciples. He said, take heed that no one deceives you concerning this time leading up to the rapture. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they'll deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. It's kind of an interesting list. He said the world will be marked by spiritual deception. A lot of deceivers in terms of religion out there and a lot of deception going on. There'll be actual wars going on all around the world, just like we have today. Today. And then rumors of wars where the next ones are going to break out. So we just kind of wake up every day and we're like the proverbial frog that is boiled in the water because the water is brought to a boil with such a slow, uh, long period of time. And we just wake up and we say we just get used to the fact that there are wars everywhere and that we're not only inundated by the seriousness of the wars, but also the, we get used to the rumors of where the next wars are going to start, and we just begin to think that this is normal. This is all just the way that it's supposed to be, and we get used to it. And Jesus is saying that, yes, of course, all of these things have happened in, in human history, but... But the way that they'll come together in the last days is is unique, as we'll talk about in a moment. He talks in about nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, not only actual wars of nations fighting against nations, but kingdom against kingdom. In other words, the world will be filled with nations maintaining their individual identity, but they're marked by civil war. Two or more different groups within the country fighting a war within the country for the control of the country, and the government has no ability to control the civil war. How much of the world is in that condition today? If you don't keep up with the news, I'll tell you, an awful lot of it is in that condition today. And then there'll be famine and pestilence, disease... Earthquakes in various places, in other words, occurring in unexpected places. So earthquakes, we expect them in California. We don't like them in California, but we expect them in California. But they don't expect them in Nebraska, where they've just had them, or in New York City, where they just had one earlier in the summer and sent everybody a You know, a Twitter on it. And all of this Jesus is speaking is just a very thorough, detailed way of saying that in the days prior to the rapture of the church, the problems of the world are going to grow worse and worse. And they'll start to occur with an ever increasing, increasing frequency. He likens them to the beginning of sorrows or literally birth pangs. We call them contractions. Childbirth The interesting thing about all of these Events that Jesus talks about and elsewhere That are in the scriptures is it Ultimately gives birth to something And the something that It gives birth to is a very very Good thing it gives birth to the new heavens And the new earth this whole series Of events But sometimes it's a painful Process getting there just like it is With a child being born It's a painful Process for that to happen And the thing about contractions or birth pains is that the longer you go, the more severe the birth pains become, the contractions become, and the more frequent they become. And Jesus is saying, he is not saying that these things have never happened throughout all of human history. What he's saying is they're going to happen with a frequency and on a level and with an intensity that is unlike anything else in history. In other words, what will happen is these things will happen one after another after another until like a child being born into the world, the mother hardly has any time to regroup herself and recover from the last contraction to get ready for the next contraction. And that will be the condition of the world in terms of these problems. One problem will rise up and it will be so great It'll use up all of the oxygen in the air. And then when the world takes and tries to apply itself to that problem, they no sooner get something less than a Band-Aid on it before the next big event occurs and the next and the next. And there's no keeping up with it. And maybe you feel that way as you watch the news today. Or as you get it online or you get it from the newspaper. As one problem doesn't even have a chance to fully develop, let alone be addressed in terms of a solution before an even greater problem pops on the scene in terms of the whole wide world. And so we're experiencing this kind of thing in the world today, just as Jesus said that it would would be well in the face of all of this in the face of a world. That is really overwhelming at this point in terms of the problems that it has and then the problems that you can look and say are coming inevitably because of a rebellion against God. You ever find yourself sitting there thinking I'm powerless in the face of this. What in the world can I do? What in the world Should I do? And Peter knew that those Christians 2,000 years ago, and he knew that Christians living in our age would feel the same way and ask the same questions. And this is where the second half of the verse comes in having to do with prayer. And you notice he says again, for the end of all things is at hand. He doesn't stop right there. Oh, great. Could you give us a tip or two about how to handle that? It doesn't stop there he said therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers now the old saying goes whenever you see a therefore in the Bible you ask yourself what it's there for because the word therefore ties it to the previous thought in other words Peter is saying I am coming to a conclusion I'm continuing my thought progression here related to the fact that but the end of all things is at hand and now here what do we do the light of that, therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And as the world deteriorates, first spiritually and then morally, and then it always has to deteriorate physically after the previous deterioration, spiritually and morally, Peter is saying that our prayer life is going to have to increase correspondingly to the degree in which the world falls into the condition that Jesus said it would and said, we need to recognize what's happening without being worried about it. But how in the world do you do that? He says, all right, then the prayer is going to have to rise correspondently in order to maintain your sanity in the middle of all of it. But what in the world is prayer? Prayer is really just simply talking to God. Now, Paris, Paris, I'm at a loss for words. Prayer is an indescribable privilege. I can stand right here where I'm standing right now as a Christian. Or any place that I am, any time, any place in the whole wide world, and I can open up my mouth or open up my heart... And I can be engaged in a conversation with a God that created me. Created the heavens and the earth. Who sent His Son into the world to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. I have access to Him to communicate to Him any time I want. You think about that. I can't always get my wife on the phone. I can't reach the governor, I can't reach the president, I can't reach the heads of states of different countries, but I can access God at any time. That is unbelievably awesome. That's an unbelievable privilege that is ours. But it doesn't change the fact that prayer is a very, very simple thing. It is just talking to that God. That I've just described. Well, how in the world do you talk to him? How in the world do we pray to him? We're to pray to him, the Bible says, just like you would talk to a friend. Just like we would talk to our best friend. could hardly believe it if Jesus hadn't told us so. John chapter 15, he said, greater love has no one than this. Than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends. What? If you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father. I have made known to you. So you begin a prayer life with God. You say, all right, what am I supposed to call you? You've got a lot of names in this book. And he says, well, just call me father. All right. And then you start from there. The supreme thing about prayer is not its eloquence. It's not its length, but its sincerity and its reality. Jesus spoke of this continually. Jesus said that when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. And then he goes on to speak of that kind of person, for they think that they would be heard for their many words. But We're not heard for our many words. I can speak a thousand words in insincerity. And they will not make the difference that twelve words spoken. And sincerity to God will and won't mean as much to him as the parable that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Tax collectors were hated by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Jesus said two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed thus with himself. You want to know what a good prayer is to pray that never leaves the room? You're just praying to yourself. Here it is. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector standing over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The man has an eye problem. The tax collector, he stood afar off. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to heaven. And he just beat his breast and he said, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. What kind of prayer is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the Pharisee, he prayed for the benefit of his human audience. And the tax collector, he prayed to God. I think about in terms of brevity in prayer and reality and God able to read a lot into a little sometimes in prayer. With Peter on the Sea of Galilee and he's walking on water because Jesus invited him to come out and walk on the water. And he's doing great until he takes his eyes off Jesus and puts his eyes on the waves and then he begins to sink and they're one of the shortest prayers in the Bible. Tonight in Nehemiah, we'll look at the longest prayer in the Bible. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible, three words. He said, Help me, Lord. Jesus said, In the huff, you call that a prayer? There wasn't a thee or thou in the whole thing. <laughs> and I need three sentences to warm up before I even got a sense of where you're coming from. You just get this three prayer thing. Now, the Lord just reached down, took him by the hand, pulled him out of the water and up. Into the boat, into safety. It was a sincere prayer. Don't complicate it. Just say to the Lord what's on your heart to say. Well, what do we pray? What kind of things do we pray to him about? Everything. Anything and everything. Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious, Paul said, for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If it's important to you, it's important to God. Oh, come on. Sometimes I listen to a pastor's perspective and uh, it was a couple weeks ago I heard somebody call. I'm going to get into trouble here. Wait a second. Let me rethink this. No, it is not worth the damage. It has nothing to do with Chuck or Don Stewart or anyone. I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings in the room. So, but the fact of the matter is, is that if it's important to you, it's important to him. And that's an amazing thing to think about. If you want to talk it over with him, there's the realization he is always eager to do that with you. And David did it, and David encouraged everyone else to do it as well. Psalm 62, verse 8, trust in him at all times, you people pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, that word "pour" in the Hebrew means to spill, spill completely. I come from a home of, of spillers, growing up. Reach across over here, there go the milk. My granddaughters are the same way, and you're still get in a lot of trouble for it. I can't spell. I don't have my glasses. you can gonna spell in your lifetime. You gotta think that grows on trees. Whole deal. If that could cure it, I'd have been cured. I had a twin brother who was worse than me. But you spill, and the idea is you spill that glass until everything has come out. And that's how we're to pray to the Lord. Anything and everything prayed to the Lord. He's interested in it. And the Bible teaches that we're also to pray with great confidence, the confidence that our prayers make a difference in any situation we pray for. Do you believe that about your prayer? Say, I don't see a difference. That's not your problem. That's God's problem. We have the promise from God that any situation that we pray for, no situation that we pray for is the same after we've prayed as it was before the prayer was prayed. God listens to our prayers and He honors our prayers and He honors Him in His timing. We're to pray with that kind of confidence. And then what does prayer accomplish in us? There's the old saying, Prayer changes things, and it certainly does. We're to have that confidence. But then the old saying is, yeah, the first thing it does is it changes me. Nobody can pray without being changed as a result of, uh, of prayer. Just engaging in, in the activity of it changes us. It does something good inside of us. And so what does prayer accomplish in our lives? Well, one of the things that it does is it keeps us in contact with God, who, by the way, is the only sane voice in the whole wide world. And Jesus is saying, and Peter is saying here, as the world unravels, as the world becomes crazier and crazier, and as you are able as a Christian to make less and less sense of the decision making and where it is headed and why it is going where it is and all of that, you're going to need a place that you can go to where you can consistently be in contact with sanity in terms of what we're experiencing around the world today. And prayer keeps us from being disoriented and being confused or being fearful in the middle of the condition of the world that all of us are around. How does the Lord and the Lord speaks to us through prayer? How does he speak to us through prayer? You ever think about that? What a marvel, what a miracle. Every Christian is. So every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made, made by God, originally made physically and originally made not just physically, but always in the image of God. But you think of the marvel our bodies are physically? But think about what God does in a Christian spiritually in making us into a spiritual man and a spiritual woman. He takes us and we're brand new Christians and we've never prayed a prayer in our whole life. Never prayed a prayer in our whole life. And then now a year later, five years later, ten years later, twenty years later, forty years later, sixty years later. It's like breathing for us. How in the world did he do that? And he does it in everybody. Whatever they Intellectual capacity, whatever their education, whatever their exposure, whether they, can, they have a Bible that is a whole Bible that is in their hands, or they get the Bible in pages as it's passed around in the city that they live in. But He brings us all to the same place where we're able. He takes us here from nothing, and He builds this thing where we not only know how to pray to God, but we know how to hear His voice over time. Think about the investment in a human life to be able to sit and ask God for wisdom, and then He invests the time and the effort into our lives, and then the way that He uniquely speaks to us oftentimes, so that we can hear His voice and be confident it is is His voice. And He does that to untold millions of people all around the world. It's amazing. So how does he speak to us sometimes through a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge, not from another person to us, but to our own heart while we're engaged in prayer or will remind us of a promise somewhere in his word. And, and we turn to that passage and we read it as an answer to our prayer for the direction that we're needing. And sometimes it just happens through his peace. Again, Philippians chapter four, Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God. How peaceful is God? He's pretty peaceful. So that's pretty valuable stuff. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, in other words, it's supernatural, doesn't come with understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And sometimes we just pray and we lift something up to him. And he just overwhelms us with his peace. And that is an evidence of his participation in our prayers. Now, you can't find a greater fan or an encourager related to prayer in all the Bible than Jesus himself. Jesus could not have given greater encouragement to prayer to us as his disciples than he did, or greater promises associated with prayer than he did. Let me give you just one sample. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus speaking to us, his disciples. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what if a man is among you who, if he has a son, asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? You cannot have a greater encouragement to prayer than those promises of Jesus right there. If, if those promises and that encouragement will not provoke a prayer life in a child of God, nothing will. Nothing will if that won't do it. In a Christian's life, clearly Jesus wants us as his disciples, as his followers, to be a praying people. And Peter tells us that we're to be serious and watchful in our prayers, literally to be serious and watchful into our prayers. In other words, it speaks about our attitude in prayer, but it also speaks is to be our attitude about prayer. In other words, everything in life can go by the wayside, Peter is saying here, but this lifeline of prayer must be maintained as an absolute priority to the child of God. The suffering 2,000 years ago of these saints... A generation of saints that are watching the things that we're watching take place in the world every single day. And as we see the events of the world and of life unfold before us, as the end is nearing, I don't know when it is, but I know it's nearing, it's approaching, is nearer than it's ever been before. Let us commit to giving prayer a greater place in each of our lives than it has ever had before. Will you receive that as a word from the Lord to your heart this morning? For some of you, it'll be a confirmation of what you've already had the Holy Spirit stirring within your heart. This kind of time that God has called us to serve him, to live for him, to be a witness for him in this world. He knows it's not easy. He knows better than we know. And we're living through it. And he knows the kind of prayer life we're going to need to be able to successfully navigate it. And as it grows worse and worse, the depth Of our prayer life is going to need to grow proportionately. And that's what Peter is telling them and telling us here. If you already have a wonderful, healthy, daily prayer life with the Lord. Would you consider adding two minutes or five minutes to that prayer life under the leading of the Holy Spirit? Adding two or three or four new people or new situations that you haven't prayed about before to your prayer list. Or to take one of the prayer lists that are out on the table in the fellowship hall that are updated every week. People just like you and I in this room, they write down all the problems and situations that they are praying for in their life. And everyone they already know is praying for in their lives They say, I want my church family to be praying for this as well and to pick one of those up and to begin to pray for it or to glom on to one of the many prayer meetings that go on in the church and associated with the different uh, ministries of the church. Or maybe to find two or three people that are like minded with you on this issue and say, yes, the Lord is stirring my heart in this area. Let's come together at this particular time each week, and let's pray under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have a prayer life with the Lord at all as a Christian, nothing consistent, nothing that happens even on a weekly basis, much less on a on a, a, a daily basis, then would you just consider beginning that prayer life with the Lord this morning? Just to begin one. To say, God, I don't have this. I'm not going to have anybody stand or anything like that. Say, God, I don't have this. It's not a part of my life. I know you. I know I'm on my way to heaven. I know all of those things, but this is not happening in my life. And I'm a wreck and I don't know why I'm a wreck, but I'm a wreck and now I know why I'm a wreck so, Lord, would you take me by the hand? And I'm not blaming you for the fact that this hasn't happened before. But, Lord, like never before, I want you to take me by the hand. And I want you to walk me out into the reality of this part of the Christian life. Because I want to discover what only that kind of person discovers in the Christian life. And he'll be faithful to take us by the hand and lead us out into it. God calling us through his word this morning and by His Spirit as well, to a deeper and a greater place of prayer. Let's stand together and we'll pray now. Father, we thank You for the unbelievable, indescribable privilege of prayer. So many things that we can't explain to other people, even our best friends, they couldn't understand. So many things, Lord, that are so private, so deep in our lives. You're the only one that we feel safe discussing them with. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this access to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for being willing to pay the price and the sending of your Son to give us that kind of access. And here we are before you. As your word says, everything is open and naked before you with whom we have to do. And we pray, Lord, that as you look at our hearts individually and our desire to continue to grow in this amazing privilege of the Christian life, that you would take us by the hand and lead us out into it. Show us what it needs to look like in our schedules. Show us what needs to go out of our lives to make room for it. Lead us and direct us in our prayers. Meet with us. Speak to us. All of the things that we've talked about, Lord, we simply ask as we surrender to you this morning that you lead each and every one of us into the prayer life that you know that we need for the age that you have called us to serve you and the prayer life that blesses you and shows respect to you and the prayer life that translates into great blessing for other people as well. And we entrust you in asking for this, Lord, and give you praise ahead of time for how you're going to answer this prayer.